We are currently studying the book of Acts line by line, and um, the last two weeks we've been focused on the arrest and release narrative of chapter 5. The apostles, let me just go through it a little bit, just to get you up to speed if you're new to us, but the apostles had been thrown into public prison for preaching Jesus. Uh, They were thrown into the public prison by the highest religious court in Israel, which is known as the Sanhedrin. Uh, In the middle of the night, as they were sort of languishing in this jail cell, if you will, they were only in there for probably a few hours, but as they were in there, an angel of the Lord came and, and freed them so that they could return to teaching the people about Christ so that they could continue to preach the gospel. And they did so the very next morning at daybreak. Um, While at the temple, the Sanhedrin had learned that they had somehow been freed. Um, They were unaware that they had been freed, and they were unaware that they were at the temple teaching. And so they gathered together at the Hall of Hewn Stone and sort of talked about... um, what they should do and how they should punish the apostles who had already been warned not to preach in the name of Jesus. And so they didn't know they were freed, and then they found out, and then they went over and retrieved them peaceably. They were afraid of the crowds. The apostles were well-liked and favored, and, I mean, they did great things for the people. They healed their sick and preached a message of hope, which is what the gospel is. And so they brought them in and began to question them, and uh, praise the Lord, the apostles stood their ground. And said that, you know, the work that we're doing is the work of God, and we must do the work of God rather than stop doing the work of God to listen to you. And the apostles then went to preach another a bit of a sermon to them by reiterating some powerful truths about Jesus Christ, about his resurrection and sovereignty and the fact that he's at God's right hand and all these cool things that they talked about right there, that they boldly proclaimed these things. Uh, again, the Sanhedrin was the group that condemned Jesus to death, and so these men were taking their own lives in their, their own hands, and, but they boldly proclaimed the gospel again before this religious court, and the Sadducees, which were some of the members of the Sanhedrin, became enraged and wanted to kill them, and uh, so we're sort of at that point now, that's where we're at in the text. We're looking at 534 to 42. We're just kind of continuing in the narrative, and uh, and that's where we left off last week. So if you want to, please turn your Bibles over to 5. We're going to look at 34 to 42 to see how the rest of it played out. We'll actually be closing out this chapter today. What I'll do is I'll read it, and then I'll pray again, and then we'll examine it together. Oh, 34. It says, but a Pharisee, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, is how it's pronounced, and I've been calling him Gamaliel for I don't know how long all week, but I guess it's Gamaliel. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men, the apostles, outside for a little while. And he said to them, this is what he said to the Sanhedrin, to the council, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before the days 
uh, Thutis is how it's pronounced. Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number uh, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. Uh, he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And then he says, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. But he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And then it says, so they took his advice. And we look at verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 41. Then they left the presence of the council, that's the apostles, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Father, as we come to your word now, Lord, we pray for understanding. We pray for humility. Man, that would be the starting point. Spiritual humility. God, we're just... Sinners, and, and many of us in here know you and you have saved us, God, but as sinners, we are not prone to understand your truth or to even hear it, to acknowledge it. We don't even, technically, we don't want anything to do with it. Do a work here today, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Open our minds and hearts to your truth. Give us revelation, give us understanding, give us application that we may know you better and maybe for some of us for the first time. But for many of us, we've been in relationship with you for a season. But we need to be refreshed by your word right now. We need to be equipped, empowered, transformed, prepared for the ministry of the gospel. We grant you the right to do that in this very moment. Help us with our distractions, the cares of this life. May we be lost in the narrative of the gospel, in your story, your redemptive story, Jesus Christ. Really is the only story that's worth reading, living in, understanding. Help us now, Lord. Come, be with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys ready to go? You got note sheet and... Uh, Everything you need to uh, be a successful note taker, or maybe some of you aren't note takers. How many of you guys are actually note takers? About half. I'm not a note taker. So I'm not opposed to you, but I mean, I've just never been a note taker. And whenever I take notes, I never look at them again. Does anyone do that? You take like page after page of notes and you never go back and look at them? Isn't that weird? How many of you draw pictures? Cammy, how many of you draw pictures of the pastor when he's preaching? Yeah, I worked in junior high ministry forever, and I tell you, man, I've had kids come up, this is what I learned, and there's a picture of a stick figure holding a Bible, that's you, all right, 
And they always included the sweaty armpits. It's accurate. Anyways, I hope you're ready to go. Let's do this. Let's look at 34. What a great storyline this has been. 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in high honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while, it says. The Sanhedrin was comprised of two major groups of leaders. Many of us know these things, but just in case. But they, the Sanhedrin was this group of 71 men who led all of the religious functions and temple things and all these things in Israel, and 71 men, and they were divided into two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the political leaders. Uh, they held the highest offices in the Sanhedrin, like high priest and chief priests. Um, they had great dealings with the Roman government because they were political leaders. You know, the Pharisees despised the Roman government. They were these religious leaders, and they were all about the religion, and so they looked at Rome as an infringement on their freedom and right to have religion and all these things. But the Sadducees were perfectly at home with Rome. Uh, in fact, Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time that Jesus was crucified, and during this moment, which is probably 60 or 70 days after uh, Jesus was crucified, Caiaphas had been um, put in place by the Romans as the leader of the Sanhedrin, as the leader of the Sadducees. Um, so the Sadducees were this uber political group tied to Rome, interacting with Rome, had no problem with that. They were also the administrative body that oversaw and managed the temple and all of its functions. That's not to say that the Pharisees didn't have some action in there, but these guys, man, they were the ones. In fact, Caiaphas was the only guy that could actually go in behind the veil. You know, once a year, the high priest could go behind the veil and approach the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, and all those things, and Caiaphas was the only guy that could do it. Um, but they oversaw all the functions of the temple and all of its business dealings and influence and, and everything. Now, the Sadducees were, and I've said this over the weeks, they were religious. There's no doubt you had to be religious to be a part of the Sanhedrin, but they uh, rejected the supernatural. You know, they rejected resurrection and angels and, and, uh, and the fact that people have a spirit. They rejected all these supernatural aspects to God's truth, and, and, uh, which makes it really weird. How can you reject those things? I mean, you're, you're talking about a God who's a supernatural God who transcends time and, and all these things. God is a supernatural being, and yet they reject all things supernatural, um, but this ultimately put them at odds with the Pharisees who affirmed these things. But the Sadducees were an interesting group. They were aristocrats, and they were wealthy and rich and, and political and, and, uh, and, and really in charge and in control and controlled the whole situation and temple and everything. They were an interesting group. The Pharisees were the other group. Many of us are familiar with them, but... Uh, we would consider them to have been the true religious leaders in the Sanhedrin or in Israel. Uh, they were actually responsible for things like 
studying, interpreting, teaching, and enforcing the Mosaic law. Sadducees didn't have that responsibility. The Pharisees did. Uh, the Pharisees had men within their ranks uh, like scribes. We've seen, you know, in the Gospels, when you look at the Gospels, you see Jesus teaching and a scribe will come and address him and ask him questions and provoke him and things. And scribes were Pharisees and scribes were the guys who were literally, I mean, they were experts in the Mosaic Law, not in that they fully understood its meaning. They certainly thought they did. They didn't realize that the whole Mosaic Law points to Jesus. But, I mean, they were really experts in it. They would have been like attorneys, poring over the law books and looking at the, you know, the Pentateuch and all of the, all of the other books of the Old Testament. They, they were experts in it. They also did all the translating. So they would translate all the text into uh, maybe the Greek language or, or something of that nature. So they were uh, incredibly uh, educated as far as the Mosaic law went. And then you had, so you had the scribes who were Pharisees, but you also had the teachers of the law. The scribes weren't really the teachers. The teachers of the law were the ones who taught the word. They taught the Mosaic law. They impressed it upon people. So you had these translators, these guys who did the research, and then you had these guys who taught it, who proclaimed it in Solomon's portico and in the synagogues and all these places. Those were the teachers of the law, and they also enforced it. So when they found someone who... Uh, was an Orthodox Jew, for lack of better words, who was outside of God's will and breaking God's law, it was these guys that would come and put the hammers on them. You know, they'd come and say, man, you, you know, you're breaking the law. You're, you, you've broken the commandments. You've broken these things. And, and so they were almost like the, the police of the religion, for lack of better words. And as I said, the Pharisees differed from the Sadducees theologically, they affirmed the supernatural and believed in angels, miracles, and resurrection, and, and really the sovereignty of God, too, which is another thing that the Sadducees rejected. They kind of viewed all of creation and what God was doing is this, it's happening now moment, and God is sort of responding to all of it sort of way. But the Pharisees rejected all of that. Man, they were into the supernatural, the miracles, and God is sovereign. He's in control. He's doing all these things. In a lot of ways, Pharisaical belief would have been much more similar to our own beliefs as Christians, as the Sadducees, even though there's a huge wing of Sadducean types of Christians out there that, you know, reject the supernatural in these things. I can't figure out how they're Christian at all, but... So the Pharisees, man, they were the legal experts in all this. They were vastly different from the Sadducees, and yet they were all a part of the same council and had to do ministry together and had to serve with one another and carry out all the religious duties with one another. And uh, how often or how difficult is it to be able to do those things, to have that religious-centered cohesion when you believe two completely different things? I mean, we all know people, right? And we have friends that think a little differently than we do about certain aspects of the faith. And sometimes tensions arise and and we debate each other and we argue over election and all these things. And, and yet you have two groups that are just incredibly different from one another who are serving in the same council. Very interesting. Now, during the Lord's ministry, his encounters with the Sadducees were fairly minimal. 
if you just go back over the Gospels and even just skim them to some degree, you don't see Jesus interacting with the Sadducees very often. He didn't have a whole lot to do with the Sadducees. They rarely came out and, and messed with him or asked him questions. On occasion, they showed up. And I think the reason why the Sadducees didn't have, uh, weren't really involved with the ministry of Jesus, at least from a personal level, they didn't come out a whole lot, was because they didn't really see Jesus as much of a threat for the first couple of years of his ministry. They didn't see him as a threat to their political structure or to their political reign or to the government or any of those things. Remember, these guys are political leaders. And so if somebody is out there creating a problem for their government or for the religious system and the political aspects of it all, they're going to react to that and show up a lot and, and, you know, and they're going to try to stop that. And so we don't see them showing up a lot in the Gospels. And I think the reason why is they just didn't see Jesus as much of a threat to their political system, at least not up front. Later on, they really began to see him as a threat. You know, he was getting all these followers and all these people and and, and just they, they were alarmed and very paranoid, and they believed that, man, he could get the Romans on our backs or something. But for the most part, we don't see a lot of interaction with the Sadducees and Jesus during his ministry at all. The majority of interaction and opposition to Jesus came through the Pharisees. In the Gospels, we read over and over and over, the Pharisees came, the scribes came, and a teacher of the law came, and a chief teacher of the law came, and these were all Pharisees that kept coming and, 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 you know, interacting with Jesus over and over and over, and they ultimately saw Jesus as a false teacher and as a blasphemer who basically threatened their religion by trying to lead people away from God. They saw Jesus as a rebel who openly flouted their ordinances, okay? We must remember, though, that Jesus never disobeyed the Mosaic Law. The Pharisees condemned him for disobeying the Mosaic Law all the time. But Jesus never, never, ever, ever disobeyed or breached or broke the Mosaic Law. On the contrary, he obeyed it perfectly. If he had not obeyed it perfectly, he would not have fulfilled it and therefore met the standard of righteousness which was required by God for the Messiah. Okay? Now, what happened was the Pharisees had layered human traditions and interpretations onto the Mosaic Law, making the whole thing one massive system of religion. And since they layered all these human things on top of God's perfect law, corruption was rampant. Corruption was rampant because they introduced all these human errors and all these human ideas and stuff. What they basically did was they took the Old Testament and they began to write new stuff and add it to it. And so all of a sudden the Old Testament went from being 39 books to, you know, with X amount of laws to really more books in a way and additional laws and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws that were layered on top of God's holy law. That's what they had done. And the thing is, is that Jesus could differentiate between the errors and the truth. 
The Pharisees could not. And so when Jesus called into question the aspects or parts or ordinances of the law, of what the Pharisees had put together, when he called into question those parts that were infected with errors, when he did that, and that's exactly what he did, he never breached the law, but he called into question the traditions and the errors that were in it, that's when the Pharisees reacted by condemning him as a lawbreaker. You see? Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, but he completely jettisoned everything that had been added to it in all of the false interpretation and all of those things. And you know, he blatantly, right in their faces, disobeyed it. And then turned it on them and told them, you're wrong. And so they just burned with, these are the experts in the law, right, supposedly? They burned with ferocious anger and hatred for him because they believed that he was just this crazy rebel who disobeyed the Mosaic law because to them the Mosaic law was what it is plus everything else and they just hated him for it. And so they resisted him. And so every time he was out doing ministry, they were present. Look at every time Jesus is doing ministry in the Gospels. Nearly every time he's there. They're not on the boat with him when he's teaching his men, when Peter tries, you know, when, he, when he's out on the water and they're out on the water and, and Peter's about to walk out there and Jesus meets him and Peter falls in and goes bass fishing. They're not there during those types of experiences, but they're there pretty much whenever there's teaching, whenever there's healing, whenever there's feeding of four or five thousand. They're always around, checking him and listening and, and taking notes. There's another error. He's broken the Mosaic law again. Well, no, he's just jettisoned your rules and things that you've layered on top of it. So that's kind of who we have here in this setting, in this meeting place. We have these Sadducees, uber-political, wealthy, rich, right? Super-political, whatever, in charge, holding the highest positions. Not all that religious, somewhat. Then we have the Pharisees, uber-super, crazy religious, wearing all the garb experts and everything. We have these groups in this sort of melting pot. And one side wants to put Jesus to death, and that's the Sadducees. Because, I mean, not Jesus to death. They want, they want to put the apostles to death. They wanted to put Jesus to death. They did put him to death. But they want to put the apostles to death. Because the apostles are preaching resurrection, and they reject resurrection. And the apostles undermined their leadership and rejected their leadership. And, and when they were told to obey them and, and, you know, don't you preach in the name of Jesus anymore, what did they do? They preached the name of Jesus even more. And so they're burning with ferocious anger. They're wanting to kill. Now, in 34, we are introduced to the guy we've mentioned, Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a teacher of the law who belonged to the Pharisees. Now, one of the ultimate goals of a young Orthodox Jewish boy in those days was to be selected and tutored by one of the better instructors or rabbis that was in the community. Gamaliel was considered to be one of the elite. This guy was the creme de la creme of rabbis. This guy was known by all the people. He was very, very well known. Uh, in some ways, uh, or in a modern context, we would regard him today as one of the great professors of one of our major colleges or something like that. I mean, this guy 
was a superstar rabbi, man. People knew him. He had what people believed was wisdom and knowledge, and he was an absolute expert in the law. He was a, a teacher in it, meaning that he was authorized by the Sanhedrin to teach the Mosaic law, to impress it upon people. I think that he had, he was, his uh, wisdom and knowledge and ability was so far beyond. He even had interpretational skills. I mean, this guy was, in those days, would have been just a stud. Gamaliel, man, he was at the top. He was amazing to these folks here. To be taught by him was a, an incredible, a terrific honor and privilege. And that was really the goal of all Jewish boys, especially the or Orthodox ones. Man, if I could be, I'm going to be schooled by that guy, and he's cool, but man, I would like to be trained in the Mosaic Law by Gamaliel. I mean, that's how he was regarded. He was an incredible teacher. Now, the text says that he was held in high honor by all the people. Honor is translated timios in Greek, and it means costly or precious. Luke, who authored this book that we've been studying, wants us to know that Gamaliel was considered to be a most valuable, an MVP, so to speak, or a precious, precious, valuable rabbi in that community, man. Bottom line, the people absolutely loved and respected him. MacArthur wrote this, Gamaliel was easily the most prominent rabbi of all time and one of the greatest of all antiquity. He was the grandson of another prominent rabbi, Halil, and his successor and his successor as the leader of the liberal wing of the Pharisees. And I don't think liberal mean, meant then what we think it means today. Gamaliel was one of the few honored with the title Rabban, R-A-B-B-A-N, instead of the usual title Rabbi. How highly he was honored by all the people may be seen in the following quotation from the Mishnah, which are additional Jewish writings. And it says this in the Mishnah about him. It says, when Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, the glory of the law ceased, and purity and abstinence died. Gamaliel was obviously held in massively high esteem and regard and had had a massive impact on the Jewish community. For historians to write that, man, when the day that that guy died, man, morality and all these important Jewish things went right out the window with him because he held the line. That's how this guy was viewed. That's how this guy was viewed. That's who we're studying. Now, he also had a star pupil who later became an anti-Christian mercenary for the Sanhedrin. And that pupil was Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul. How interesting, right? This was his instructor. This was his teacher. Gamaliel was his uh, it was his rabbin. Very interesting. In Acts 22.3, the Apostle Paul gave his testimony to an angry crowd in Jerusalem. Uh, before mentioning how he was converted, he shared these insights about himself. Acts 22.3, he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia or uh, Cilicia, but brought up in this city, he's referring to Jerusalem, and he says, educated at the feet 
of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. And then he said, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. The Apostle Paul had been personally trained by Gamaliel. Now this would explain why Paul had such a great memory and grasp of the Old Testament, which is seen so clearly in his epistles. In many ways, he had been trained very well by Gamaliel. And it, the fruit of that is seen in his grasp of the Old Testament. And, and Paul was, by, hands down, probably the greatest Christian theologian, I would say, to ever come. I mean, he just, no one could take the Old Testament and, and, and bridge Jesus, you know, and make that bridge with Jesus as good as he could. This guy was just amazing. Well, the guy we're reading about trained him. So you get kind of the idea here of who this guy is. Now, Gamaliel was a leading Pharisee teacher and council member in the Sanhedrin. And then the text, our text that we're studying, says that he did what? He stood up and gave orders for the apostles to be put outside for a little while. Gamaliel wanted the guards to put the apostles out for a moment so that he could address the rest of the council. Look at 35, where he begins to do this. It says, Luke writes, And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you were about to do with these men. Once the apostles were outside, Gamaliel addressed the leaders by saying, Men of Israel. Interesting salutation. Uh, the apostles, apostle Peter used this salutation when he preached his first sermon in Solomon's portico. The Apostle Paul used it when he addressed the Jews in Antioch. Gamaliel used it. Maybe this men of Israel was a common way to address leaders or potential leaders or, or just the men of Israel. I don't know, but it's a common thing here. And we see it being used by Gamaliel. And then what did he say after he said men of Israel? It says that he said, take care what you are about to do with these men. Paraphrased, 35 would sound like, Men of Israel, slow down and consider what you're about to do to these men. Gamaliel could tell that the tensions were running high. He could see how the Sadducees were boiling in rage and anger. I mean, their countenance must have just been fiery. You know, they're, they're all together in this circle, and you have the apostles in the middle of this room, and you've got the, maybe the Sadducees on one side and the Pharisees on the other. And Gamaliel, man, he's a discerning guy. He can see that the Sadducees are boiling with rage. That was the last thing we studied last week. It says that they, you know, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Well, he can tell. It's pretty obvious. They're not trying to hide it. They're over there gnashing their teeth and getting red, getting hot, getting mad, getting bowed up. He can tell. He might have even heard their whisperings. Maybe they started saying, man, we should just kill these fools. Why are we letting them do this? You know we can just kill them. We got rid of their leader. We can do the same thing with them. I mean, they may have been whispering these things. We don't know. I think they probably were. Now, Gamaliel, though, seeing that the tensions were rising and maybe hearing the little conversations and seeing these guys were angry, he basically used his authority to intervene and then to try to reason with the Sadducees who were all bowed up. In verses 36, 36 to 37, Gamaliel gives 
Two illustrations that set up his big point in 38 and 39a. Look at 36 to 39a. We're going to kind of read that and break it down. Here's what he says. Men of Israel, take heed to what you're about to do with these guys. Back the truck up. Relax. Calm down. Don't get stupid. That'd be my translation. And he says, for before the days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. And then he says, he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. What happened to him? He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it's going to fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And he says, you might even be found opposing God. Gamaliel reminds the Sanhedrin of two past religious uprises, uprisings that sprouted and then ended after the deaths of their leaders. The first one that he mentioned was led by a man named Thutis. Thutis is shrouded in mystery and controversy. We're not absolutely certain to who this guy was. Josephus, the first century historian, recorded that a man named Thutis rose up and led a large revolt sometime after Luke wrote his gospel in the book of Acts. This, of course, would mean that Luke was not referring to that particular guy, the same guy that Josephus was writing about. And, of course, there's skeptics out there that take that information and they now begin to say, look, the Bible is riddled with errors because, you know, this couldn't have happened. It didn't happen before Luke, so Luke must be lying. He's got to be fabricating. Isn't that what the enemy does? He takes these little misunderstandings and, and tries to manipulate them and say that the Bible's riddled with error. Not true here at all. Thutis was a fairly common name in those days. And history shows that a large number of tumults and insurrections arose in Judea following the death of Herod the Great. If you combine the fact that that was a very common name with the fact that there were multitudes of revolts that came up prior to Luke writing this, then you can deduce that Luke must be writing about somebody else. Luke even goes on to say, this guy had 400. The one that Josephus wrote about said the guy had thousands. There are two different guys with the same name. Cool your jets, skeptics. It's okay. Now, Josephus also recorded that 2,000 men, roughly 2,000 men, were crucified for revolting by the Romans during the 6th century A.D. 2,000 people back years before Luke wrote any of this stuff, were basically crucified for revolting. The chances of Thutis being amongst that group are very high. I mean, when King, King Herod the Great died, the people went into absolute chaos. You know, and people started building, creating these factions and started building these little gangs, for lack of better words, and just started just doing their own thing. And, and all this stuff happened. Josephus said, a great Jewish historian, said, man, there were, there were thousands of people put to death by the Romans back before these things happened. Now, the second uprising Gamaliel, or Gamaliel mentioned, was led by a guy named Judas the Galilean. 
There is no confusion or controversy about this guy. Judas the Galilean led a violent resistance to the census imposed by Roman, or for Roman tax purposes by Quirinius in AD 6 to, AD 6 to 7. Okay, this was a guy who couldn't, I mean, he just could not stand Rome, and they, the Romans kept putting these taxes out there on the Jewish people, and the Jewish people felt that they were being robbed, and this guy put a faction of people together who fought against the census and said, no, we don't think so. You're not going to tax us and take our money. We're not going to give our money to the Kaiser. You know, that's what this guy did, apparently. Now, interestingly, Judas the Galilean is believed to have formed or been the founder of the group called the Zealots. The Zealots were a politically motivated extremist group that led violent attacks against the Romans for a, a long, long time. In modern terms, they would be the terrorists of their day, the extremists who let out these terrorist attacks, and they usually did it with big curved knives, and they would come and stab a centurion or something like that. They were very bloodthirsty and, and violent and, and, and had this tunnel vision of eradicating the land of Romans, and they did everything they could to do it. Now, interestingly... One of Jesus' 12 disciples used to belong to that group. He apparently left the zealots after being called to ministry, after being saved and transformed. Luke 6.15 identifies him as what? Simon the zealot. So even Jesus had one of these radical extremist guys on his team. And the guy was changed by the Lord's mercy and grace and love and teaching and the gospel. And he changed his ways. Now, during the uprising of A.D. 6 to 7, Judas the Galilean was eventually captured and put to death along with many of his followers, and the uprising fizzled out, and the remaining zealots were basically scattered. They were all over the place. They weren't as organized as they had been and all that. They were scattered, kind of like after 9-11 when we started going after these terrorist-sponsoring nations. What happened with the terrorists? We made it a lot more difficult on them to localize and mobilize, right? We keep them running. And that's what happened with the zealots. After the Romans came in and absolutely brutalized them, they couldn't come together and gather and plan and strategize like they could before when Judas was leading. And so they became scattered. They were all over the place. Now, after these two illustrations, Gamaliel then moved to make his point in verse 38 by shifting their attention to the present moment. He pointed to the apostles, and then he literally pointed to them and called for a wait-and-see policy. He basically said this, paraphrased, leave the apostles alone and let's watch to see what will come of them and their movement. If, it is, if their movement is of their own will, it will eventually fail. If it is of God's will, it will continue and we won't be able to do anything about it if we combine verses 36 all the way through with 39 air uh, 39a and we paraphrase those together they would sound like this this is basically what gamma liel has said he has said we have a history of men rising up we have a history of men rising up and gathering followers and we have a history of those men being put to death we have a history of those factions and those movements coming to nothing. Thutis and Judas the Galilean illustrate this for us. 
That could be what is taking place here with these men. Let us wait to see what will come of them and their movement. Again, if the undertaking is of men, it will be brought to an end just like the others. If it is of God, you will not be able to stop them. And then what did he say? Even worse, you might be found opposing God. So can you see what he's done here and how he strutted this in here? He takes them, he takes historical examples and he applies it to the guys that are here and he's saying, look, all this stuff happened before basically and obviously it wasn't of God because none of it stuck. I suggest and submit to you that the same thing might be happening with these guys and so let's just let it play out and see what happens. If it's of God, it'll be sustained. If it's not, it'll go bye-bye. How did the Sanhedrin respond to Gamaliel's seemingly wise advice? Look at 39b. So they took his advice. They agreed. They felt that his plan was a good plan. Now, while Gamaliel's counsel seemed wise to the Sanhedrin, the notion that success is always a sign of God's blessing is false. That is the very thing that Gamaliel suggested or inferred or implied. He basically said, if the apostles fail, it wasn't of God. If they succeed, it was of God. Now, we know that his statement was true in regards to the apostles and the movement, which was the Christian faith. The Christian faith is of God. He blesses it, and it cannot be stopped. Jesus said so. Right? So in a way, what he has said applies to that, and he was right, I mean, in the sense that if it continues, it's of God. So in a way, he's right. But his philosophy cannot be applied to every other scenario. If we do that, then God becomes one who blesses and sustains evil because many evil things like cults and false religions and all these other things remain in the world. We cannot attribute the continuance of all things, whether good or bad, to God's blessing. Just because something succeeds does not mean that it is blessed of God. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day during this time completely held that philosophy. They had been indoctrinated into that line of thinking since birth, every one of them. Judaism basically teaches that success in relationships, success in business, success in religion, success in daily life is a sign of God's favor, a sign of God's blessing, and they took it farther to say that it's even a sign of salvation. Judaism teaches that financial prosperity is always a direct result of God's favor. The Sadducees believed these things. They would fight for these things. The Sadducees attributed their wealth and prosperity to the God who was blessing them. In their minds, God was pleased with them. He loved their religion. And that is why they got the fat financial hookup. But according to the scriptures, they didn't even know God. They had no idea who God was. They rejected the supernatural. How can one who rejects the supernatural know the supernatural God? According to the scriptures, their financial prosperity came through a corrupt business racket that they had set up at the temple. 
Oh, how they praised God for their success. He was behind all of their success. And yet they were absolute enemies of God. It is the same with the Pharisees and the same with Gamaliel. Gamaliel believed that his public notoriety, his public you know, favor and love and acknowledgement, his financial success, and believe me, he had it, and his ministerial success were the direct results of God's favor and blessings. And yet, he was an active member of the Sanhedrin that murdered Jesus. And under his tutelage, he formed, fashioned, and sent out one of the greatest enemies of the Church of Christ of the first century, Saul of Tarsus. If we hold the view that the perpetuity of a thing, the continuance of a thing, is always the direct result of God's blessing, then we must also affirm that all wars are blessed by God. And that's not to say that God doesn't initiate a battle, because he does. Look at the Old Testament, and he blessed his people when they were in battle, when they were obedient. But are we going to go as far as to say that because we live in an era, and since the fall of man, essentially, there's been millions upon millions of wars, and small skirmishes, big skirmishes, civil wars, whatever. Are we to say that because wars continue, they never end, they continue and continue and continue, that God is blessing them? Wars are a a product of his blessing. Are we going to say that? Are we going to say because we have to say it, we, we literally have to say that if something is sustaining, then it's obviously God's blessed it. He's the one that's keeping it going through his blessedness. Are we to say that all religions and cults are blessed by God? Really? Are we to say that all violence is blessed by God? When's the last time violence hasn't been going on? Buy yourself a police scanner. Every night there's stabbings and murders and robberies and all these horrible, horrible things in Modesto. All over the place. Oh, we think it's just all over on the west side. No, 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 friends. Wherever there's sinners, there's crime and murder and violence. Well, violence is a continuing thing, so therefore God must be blessing it. Violence is a fruit of his blessing there are horrible things that have existed in our world since the fall of man and they will continue until the return of jesus but we cannot believe and declare that their continuance is a direct result of god's blessing that would be absolute lunacy the continuance of these things the reason for them and their continuance is sin not god's blessing We live in a fallen world. You see, the philosophy doesn't hold up because you can't say that just because something continues that God must be blessed because there's a lot of horrible things that continue. And and you can't, there's no other way to arrive. You can't, that when you say what Gamaliel has said, that it's all inclusive. No, 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 no. What I meant was only all the good things, the good things that God blesses. No. Gamaliel has suggested that All things, if they continue, if they have some level of perpetuity, they just keep going. Then obviously of God. If the apostles succeed, if it just keeps going, then it had to be of God because the only way that things can continue no matter what is that God has to be blessing it. 
You see his philosophy coming through? Well, we mustn't adopt his philosophy because it cannot be applied to every scenario and situation. The scriptures will not allow it. Now, this, of course, means that we must be very discerning in our decision-making. So often we look for God to open doors, and then we look for continuance, for perpetuity, and then we look for prosperity, and so on and so on. And when all of those things come together, we claim that God was behind it, and it may very well be true. It could be that God opens a door and then continues it, and then, you know, and then it, 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 it's manifested in some fruit or something, and then we praise God for that. That's okay, that's fine. But how often do doors open and then there's a bit of continuance and then it all comes crashing down? Well, it must not have been of God. Well, that could be, but could it be that God actually devised a good plan for you? He opened doors and gave you continuance, but along the way you hijacked the plan and put a bunch of sin into it, started manipulating things, started cheating on your taxes, whatever it is, and then it fell apart. This happens all the time. And a lot of times what happens is when we believe God opened a door and then he continued it and then it all comes crashing down, we blame God. Well, he opened the door and he continued it for a season, but then it all came crashing down, so it's ultimately his fault. And now I'm going to hold that against him. Or in the reverse, he opens a door, it continues for a while, we hijack the plan because we're excellent hijackers, right? Oh, man, do we hijack the things of God and manipulate them and screw them up and use them for our own purposes. We take this awesome plan. We begin to engage in sinful things that help for it to perpetuate and go on, and then it's successful, and then in the end we praise God for the plan that he came up with and continue it and all that, and all the while we were manipulating it and injecting it and impregnating it with our sin, and it's because of what we did ultimately. Is God pleased with that? Was it God that really bought that, brought that plan? and then carried it all the way through even though sinners hijacked it and did all that stuff with it? No, there, there's just, there, there's a, it's just the most frustrating thing. There's just such a massive contingency of the people in the church that believe this junk. That man, if God, if God continues it, then it must be his plan no matter what. You know? And sometimes we employ sinful means or we hurt people along the way and then we have the audacity at the end of that thing to say, well, God brought it around, and he blessed it, and he did it and all that, and you were manipulating it the whole time and putting your sin in it? Are you kidding me? Or it doesn't come to fruition, and it all comes crumbling down, and ultimately it was our plan all along, but since the door was opened by God, and since it went on for six months, now we have the audacity to blame him for its failure? Hey, what are you doing, God? You brought it and you did all this, and now it just it stinks. It didn't plan out, and people have been hurt, and, and I couldn't meet my objectives, and I couldn't meet my responsibilities. And so what were you thinking, God? Do you know how many people there are in the church that do this junk? I, I, I bet you anything that most of the plans that are come up with are our own plans. We're not a praying people, and we live in a time of exponential biblical ignorance so for the most part the church does not know what God's word says or teaches and so we come up with all kinds of plans and none of them are according to his will and then we have the audacity to give him glory for something that was sinful or to rebuke him because it didn't happen I can't tell you how many people I've met that do this stuff they play this game 
Well, I'm going to see what happens. And if God opens the door and he continues and he brings it to fruition, then obviously it was his plan. That doesn't mean it was his plan. It doesn't mean that it was his plan. It doesn't necessarily mean that at all. How will you know? Well, if it's something that aligns with his will and his word, then maybe it was his plan. But how many schemes and things that we hatch and then blame God or give him praise? And Based on this type of thinking, this kind of philosophy which is not Christian. That's not Christian. I had a woman one time sit in my office when I was a pastor at Big Valley, sit down and tell me, you know, God opened the door, brought all the things together, and then completed it, and I praise him for it. And that was the divorce of my husband. So I didn't immediately go, and start beating her. You know, I said, so why did you divorce him? Well, you know, he, I mean, she came up with a, just a whole cadre of reasons. There was no marital unfaithfulness. There was, there was nothing in her words that would, that would even remotely come close to Scripture. She didn't have scriptural grounds for divorce. She certainly wasn't a reconciler. She was holding all this stuff against her husband, and then she believed that God opened the door, gave her what she wanted, and then brought it to fruition, left her husband out in the cold, was moving on with another guy and was praising God for it. I just looked at her and said, please move a little farther away from me. Wow, really? Did you not search the scripture? Did you not seek the wisdom of godly men? You just went out and railroaded him. People do this stuff all the time. All the time. It's God's will because he made it happen. He gave me the idea. Satan gave you that idea, woman. Straight up. And you carried out his purpose. And you destroyed your family. Praise God. You're right. Woo! Bless God. All right. And you know what? You could sit there and reason with them, and they're just like, no, I know it was God's will. You know? Well, so be it. Good luck. Now, we've got to be discerning in our decision-making. We've got to be students of the word of God. We've got to be humble, calling upon God to fill us with the Holy Spirit, to give us understanding of his scripture so that we know the will of God, the way of God, the word of God, so that we can plan according to what God has said, so that we can ascribe him glory when he does bring a plan and it carries out the way, or so that we can be broken and repentive when we follow part of God's plan and then we hijack it and blow it up and mess it up or whatever it is. And we need to be wise in the word of God. Do not adopt this philosophy of, well, if it happens, it's of God. If it doesn't, it isn't. That's precisely what Gamaliel has suggested. And it's what he believes. And there's tons of people that believe that junk. It's not the word. And look what happened, right? The Sanhedrin agreed with Gamaliel. Oh, that sounds like a great, you're exactly right. If it continues, it'll be a, you know, if it continues, it's of God. If it fails, it's of men. That's how the world works. That's how our almost sovereign God does all things. Yeah, right, they agree. Look at 40 to see what happened next. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The Sanhedrin brought the apostles back in. They beat them and then charged them not to speak of Jesus again. 
The funny thing is, I thought that they had agreed with Gamaliel to watch and see, but they brought him right in and gave him a whooping. So they agreed with Gamaliel, but not completely, right? Leave them alone. Let's watch and see what happens. Okay, we agree. Bring him in. Now beat him. They beat him up. They whipped him. Probably 40 lashes minus one, which was the prescribed beating according to the book of Deuteronomy. Man, they, they opened up a can of whoop butt on him, man. They lashed him and beat them. Probably had some blood on him. I mean, they whooped him. They brought him in and beat him up. Beat him up. And I don't see anywhere in the text where it says that Gamaliel rose up again and said, hey, what are you doing? We just talked. Obviously, he was sitting back going, that was a good one. Get some more elbow in there. I mean, the guy was so indifferent, right? I mean, just, we don't see him trying to stop them here. MacArthur said the flogging was criminally unjust and done to frighten them. It usually involved a beating of 40 lashes, less one to avoid violating the legal limit, Deuteronomy 25.3. And then he says apparently Gamaliel had no problem with the whipping. He didn't do anything about it, did he? How did the apostles respond to the beating? Look at 41. It says, then they left the presence of the council completely defeated, abandoning Jesus and walking away from the faith. Wait a minute. It says, then they left the prince <laughs> and they filed a lawsuit with the Civil Liberties Union. They called the ACLU, called Feinstein, said, get over here, woman. That doesn't say any of that stuff, right? They picketed at the state capitol. Man, it doesn't say that either. So then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Christ. The apostles, man, listen to this. The apostles typify those who accept the gospel message. Far from being embittered or disillusioned at their suffering, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name for Jesus. Now there are many, many things that affirm a person is possessed by the Holy Spirit. One of those things is persecution. Isn't that weird? Being persecuted for Christ's sake shows that a person is possessed, filled, taken over by the Holy Spirit. Peter put it like this in 1 Peter 4.12-14. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. And he's probably talking about what happened to him in this moment. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I'm getting beaten for Jesus. What's going on? And he says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God, the Holy Spirit, rests upon you. Man, that's so cool. Now, I've never met a Christian who does not want to be blessed by God. Wouldn't that be weird? Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Want to be blessed by God? Nah. I've never met one that doesn't want to be blessed by God. I've never, I, in fact, I don't know if I've met someone who doesn't know Jesus who doesn't want to be blessed by God. I want to be blessed by that great celestial being who's out there somewhere. They may not know Jesus, but, I mean, all people want to be blessed right? They do. For the most part, there's some that are just utterly in despair and all that, and I get it. Things have happened and all that, and they just want to die. I understand that. That's terrible. No, Jesus. But have you ever met someone who doesn't want to be blessed by God? I have met 
people who are seemingly consumed with wanting to be blessed by God. It's all they talk about. It's all they focus on. There are pastors in the church today that spend all their time on the subject. In fact, they create formulas that are supposed to result in blessings. Do E, D, and C, and you'll end up with B for blessing. <laughs> Isn't that what they do today? Good night. It's all about the blessing. When's the last time you heard a pastor give this formula? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Go preach the gospel. Be persecuted and be blessed. Oh, that'd go over like a poopy in a punch bowl in American church. Who on earth? Did you say persecuted? Is there some way that we can take that third one and slightly adjust that a little bit? How about presumed? Go be presumed. Right? You ever heard somebody give that formula? No, it's always do A plus B plus Z, whatever. It equals this. How, how, how often do you hear that? Go be filled with the Holy Spirit. Go preach the gospel. Go be persecuted because that's naturally what's going to happen. And be blessed by that. How about never? How about especially never in this great land of ours where all forms of pain and suffering are the absolute enemy of people? Might I suggest to every Christian in this room that we stop looking for pain-free only blessings from God? The work of the gospel is hard, difficult, and attacked from all sides. But it is the only work worth doing because it is the only work that has eternal significance. If you commit yourself to the work of the gospel, you will be persecuted. And you'll be blessed, just as the apostles were. The great question for us then becomes, are we... As a church body, as a people, are we willing to forsake the American gospel of comfort, easy blessing, and low risk to take up the true gospel of our Lord? For many of us, the exchange will be quite costly, but did Jesus not say to a group of potential disciples, count the cost? Did he not say that? This is what it'll take to follow me. Take up a cross, death to self, did he not tell people to evaluate? He did. And for some of us, we just haven't done that evaluating. We need to evaluate who we are. In America, we've made following Jesus a breeze. We say, pray a little prayer and invite him into your heart, and you're all good. According to the Bible, that is not at all what Jesus had in mind. Again, are we willing to forsake the American gospel of comfort easy blessing, and low risk to take up the true gospel of our Lord. Yes, it is the harder path. But I must submit that it is the only path worth taking because I believe that it is the only path that leads to true everlasting life. It is not an easy road. That's why it's a narrow path. That's why it's tiny compared to the road where people are perishing. It is a small, small path because it is not easy but all things are possible through the god who gives us the holy spirit through the god who loves us amen to that it is a harder path but it's the only path that's worth taking there is no other path there is no such thing as an easy gospel and sometimes blessing is hard 
Because the only way to be blessed is by being that man or woman of the gospel and proclaiming it and then receiving the junk that the world puts on you for it and then you can walk away rejoicing for the lashings, for the verbal attacks or whatever it is, for the criticism. Now work in a place where there's insane amounts of criticism all the time. They're just always criticizing me and the church and everything. And you know, I just I, sometimes I get defeated. But I walk out of there going, you know, it's because the Holy Spirit's in me. And because I'm, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and through the filling of the Holy Spirit, that I'm saying these godly things, and I'm walking in righteousness, and I'm living in purity, and, and, and ultimately, they're, they're just ticked off at God. They hate God. They're enemies of God. And so they're just projecting that onto me. Well, what do we do when it's projected on us? Rejoice. You're blessed. Ultimate blessing comes through persecution in these things. And yeah, God blesses us in a multitude of other ways. We're still breathing. We're living. We have relationships, families, friends. God's blessings are insane. They're everywhere. But may we be a church that's bold. May we be a church that's daring and willing to engage our culture with the good news of Jesus and willing to receive the stripes for that. And then a church that rejoices in the stripes. Man, that's what the apostles did. 42 says, and every day they ran for the hills and stopped teaching about Jesus. And every day in the temple, and look, look at this, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus, that the Christ, that the Messiah is Jesus. The apostles did not quit. Driven by the Holy Spirit in unspeakable joy, they persisted in the work of the gospel. Luke adds that they went house to house. No longer did the apostles keep the preaching of the gospel localized to Solomon's portico at the temple. No, they took it to the streets. They took it to the homes of those who didn't visit the temple. Just because it's Jerusalem doesn't mean that everyone's religious and goes to the temple. No, there was a large contingency of people that didn't ascribe to that religion. And guess what? While people were worshiping and listening to sermons in the Solomon's portico, there were people that were at homes that had nothing to do with it. And so what did the apostles do? We've got to take our message to the streets, people. And they started to go house to house. And I wonder if it was as awkward when they did that as it is today when somebody knocks on your door. Hello? I'm from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Let me get my Bible. Hold on. You know? I mean, obviously, that's proselytizing for the wrong reasons. But it's interesting that they went house to house. Why? Because they loved God. They had been impacted by the gospel. They wanted to get the message of the good news out there. They wanted to reach people that didn't come to the temple. They wanted to reach people that didn't come to what? Their church. Oh, what a concept. So often we just, it's all here. This is where we do all the things, and this is where we must get all the people to, because this is where the gospel is, and, and Pastor Phil will teach it, and they'll hear it, and all that. No, 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 the purpose for my teaching is, yes, to reach the lost, but, ah, equally important to equip you to go house to house, or job to job, and don't get a lot of different jobs, whatever. Just go out there, go out there, go out there, and preach the gospel. Preach the name of Jesus, right? Amen? The gospel in our storyline was now reaching both the religious and the irreligious, the non-religious. In our next section, Acts 6.1, it says that the church was ever increasing. It was growing 
As we shift into communion, let's ponder what we've heard this morning. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to us our fallacies and errors. Amen? Maybe our view of the gospel is a bit corrupt. Maybe we think the gospel's easy, and I just prayed this little prayer and I'm good to go, and guess what? I'm pretty much living for myself now. But I got Jesus because he's in there somewhere. He's a part of the mix. No, he is the mix. Hello, that's the gospel. You know? We don't preach for life change here. We preach for life exchange. You get it? The gospel changes us completely into a new creation. The old has died. The new has come, the apostle said. Maybe some of our views of the gospel are are just a little off kilter. Maybe our view of the church isn't what it should be. Well, my view of the church, Pastor Phil, is that I just got to get everyone here and you do the work of the ministry and I lead them to you. I drop them at your feet. Great. Thanks for increasing my counseling load. That sounds very insensitive, but it's so true. No, 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 Jimmy, you've been trained. Preach that gospel right there on that neighbor's doorstep. Tell them about God's grace. Tell them, give them your testimony. Do something. Don't just keep bringing them here. That's not what the church is about. It's not just an, uh, an epicenter where we have to bring everyone to. Yeah, we love to gather to worship, but it's more than that. It's about equipping you to be ministers of the gospel. You've got to have a right view of the church. Maybe we're guilty of not sharing the good news because we want to avoid persecution. Which basically means we're not interested in being blessed by God. Like I said, I've never met someone who's not interested in being blessed by God. Yeah, but not through that way, Pastor Phil. You're doing what you've been commanded to do in Matthew 28. You're doing what you've been equipped to do. You've been, you're doing what you've been called to do. We've existed at this church since February. That's all we've been talking about for five stinking months. Go do it. And if they treat you harshly for it, rejoice in the Lord. Look at what they did to Jesus. All of the apostles minus one were murdered and killed. That's what's going to happen. I mean, I guess in this day and age, in this country, we, can, we don't get that extreme. But we can't endure a little suffering, a little criticism, a little ridicule. We want to avoid God's blessing? God will bless you. Maybe we're addicted <laughs> to the pursuit of easy blessing, which would be I avoid all gospel conflict with everyone, and I just want the easy blessing. I want God to just drop those blessings into my lap like manna. Later on, some birds, they fly on land on my shoulder. What is it? Doves? What do they eat? Quail, they don't, they run around and they got the thing up there. Yeah, I just want the easy life, Jesus. I want the American gospel of ease and comfort. I want the American dream combined with the American gospel. Go tell that to our brothers and sisters in the Sudan who are being slaughtered. Shame on us. Ponder these things. And most importantly, repent Confess, and and, and equally important, remember the finished work of Jesus Christ that is made manifest, made, that's that's why we do communion. It reminds us of the finished work of Christ. The bread is his broken body that was broken for us. 
The juice represents his blood that was poured out the remission of our sin. Remember that he did the work. He finished the work. We reflect upon that and we leave here recharged, rejuvenated, ready to go. Ready to go receive our stripes because of the finished work of Christ. We don't have to earn anything but rest in all that he's accomplished for us. Father God, may we have an awesome time of just reflecting. You know, we're sinners, Lord, and we need to be real with ourselves. Holy Spirit, convict us in this very moment as you're convicting me, even as I preach. I'm guilty. I'm an easy blessing guy, Lord. Help me, Jesus. Please, help our people here. Speak to them in this time, and may they reflect upon the marvelous work, your perfect life, your perfect death, your perfect resurrection. Oh, what beauty there is in that work. It's finished. Oh, thank you, Jesus. May we have a sweet time with you now, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Help yourselves. And just have a few moments.